Hello all, and the warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, coming to you each time around from my very cluttered spare North Wales room, which is even more right now, it is proper box city, where I seek to bring you those tales of true crime that may not be familiar to you, that are often unreal and horrendous, that come from the darkest corners of the UK and Ireland. Bringing you these is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, the hairy football pixie is knocking around somewhere, and I'm sure he'll be fast asleep by me shortly. And we're completed by yourselves, the enthusiasts that we, well I, do this for. It's great having you here as ever folks, thank you so much. And I hope that as you've joined us, it's for a tale that finds you and yours all good, all safe, and all well. So, no messing or waffle then. We're down to the second part of the 40-year secret quicker than someone distancing themselves from Russell Brand right now. And if you haven't heard part one yet, please go and hear that first, or else this will make as little sense as the appeal of Married at First Sight. What a proper shamble of bollocks that is too. If you have heard part one, then only a nutshell recap. The 40-year secret deals with the rape and murder of tragic teenager Janet Cummins back in the North Wales town of Flint in January 1976. The mass investigation soon led police to an 18-year-old illiterate traveller named Noel Jones, who after two days questioning, signed a confession statement, was charged with a crime, and was ultimately imprisoned for 12 years to serve six of them. Jones had named another person in a second confession, a fellow traveller named Michael Orford, and though the case against Orford was dropped, following Jones's conviction, the case remained officially open, though inactive, due to the lack of any fresh evidence. Dawn the millennium, and with the advances in forensic science, and I'm talking DNA profiling, it was decided to re-examine the samples that had been retained from the 1976 investigation with a view to obtaining Orford's DNA, to either charge him once and for all, or to eliminate him completely. The samples were eventually located, and a DNA profile was raised from them. But it didn't belong to Michael Orford, and nor did it belong to Noel Jones either. It was to remain unidentified for a further 10 years, until March 2016, when a match for it was found to a sample that had been added to the National DNA Database only the previous month. Which I shall tell you all about right now. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events, including descriptions of a sexual nature and involving children, that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst listening in or. Bearing that in mind, Please join the True Crime Enthusiast for the second and concluding part of a tale that I've entitled The 40-Year Secret. So, it's best to begin this concluding part with a statement from Eileen Cummins that was issued on the 6th of September 2016, which read simply, I've been aware since May of this year that North Wales Police have been reinvestigating the murder of my daughter in 1976. I have been informed that a local man, who had not previously been suspected, has today been charged with her murder and rape. This has come as a great shock to me and my family, 
and I would ask at this time that our privacy as a family be respected and no further statement will be forthcoming at this stage. Now I was told by the officer that I've spoken to whilst researching the case that Eileen had for so many years believed Michael Orford had been the person to get away with Janet's murder. She had to be sat down and physically told that it wasn't him that police now had in their sights ready to charge. For he had been completely exonerated earlier that year through comparison of his DNA profile against the DNA profile raised from Janet's killer. And even then, Eileen had struggled to accept it, so fixated had she been in her belief. And completely understandable that, of course, but how do you suddenly abandon a belief that you have held so solidly for four decades? How do you just disregard that? On February the 8th, 2016, Essex police had taken a mouth swab from a then 57-year-old man named Stephen Anthony Huff, a father of two who lived in that area at the time, and who had been arrested on suspicion of the sexual assault of a 15-year-old girl, a sample which was uploaded onto the National DNA database. On March the 7th of that year, Huff's DNA profile had pinged a match to the profile that had been uploaded there of the sample removed from Janet's clothes that had been provided by Dr Whitaker's analysis 10 years previously, with it being a 1 in 1 billion chance of belonging to anyone other than him. It transpired that back on the 7th of January 1976, then 16-year-old Huff had lived with his parents and siblings in Mice Adre in Flint, a street that was just a hundred yards from where Janet Cummins was raped, murdered and her body dumped. He had attended both of the same schools as Janet, being in the year above her, and had been spoken to as part of the initial inquiry back in 1976, as he had turned 17 on January the 12th of that year, the day after Janet's body was discovered, and so fell into the criteria of all local men who needed to account for their movements. Huff's story had stood out at the time because he was reportedly unforthcoming during an interview and was eventually to admit that the evening Janet had been murdered, he had been masturbating in a car that he owned because he had no privacy at home to do so, with a family of six crammed into a three-bedroomed home and him sharing a room with his two younger brothers. As you do. An alibi you'd remember that, isn't it? His dad had purchased the car for him from a scrapyard for him to do up, Huff claimed, and because it was not roadworthy, having no working lights and faulty electrics, he had permission to keep it in the bus depot in Earl Street where his father worked, and where Huff used to spend time fixing it up and then ragging it around the yard. Aside from masturbating in it, Huff was also to admit that on the night of Janet's murder, he had been siphoning petrol from vehicles parked in the local gas board yard to fuel this vehicle, an offence for which he was later brought before magistrates, charged with theft, and was fined a total of £5. Of course, by the time he had been, one Noel Jones had been arrested by police, had signed two confessions admitting the rape and murder of Janet Cummins, and was awaiting trial. Perhaps he'd even been convicted by then. And so the murder of Janet Cummins was lumped on the active with regular reviews pile. 
with no more of a thought to him, Huff then continued with his life, and after a few dead-end jobs, at age 21 he married and joined the army, serving across the UK and stationed for a time in Germany. It was whilst a serving soldier here that he next came to the attention of police, when he'd been court-martialed in August 1988 for grievous bodily harm with intent after he attacked a hotel receptionist. There, he had dragged her into a toilet and was in the course of strangling her until she passed out when he was disturbed and fled. It was an offence that he disputed until forensic evidence and an identification placed him at the scene and then he'd admitted that he'd had, in his words, a brief loss of temper, claiming he was shaking her after she and a friend of hers had mocked him. He was tried and found guilty, was reduced in the ranks, ultimately dismissed from the armed forces, and served five years imprisonment for this. Hufford had somewhat of an itinerant lifestyle after this, though had divorced his first wife and married for a second time, and had lived around the country and worked in a number of trades, including as a lorry driver, before the next time he came to police attention, in February 2016, when he was arrested on suspicion of sexual assault. The following month is when his DNA swab had matched that of the DNA profile obtained from the sample that had been obtained from the semen on Janet's clothing. So, after some months of behind-the-scenes investigating then, learning as much as they could about Huff, because they've got him in the fray now, he's going nowhere. On the 4th of September 2016, officers from Operation Orbicular, the reinvestigation into Janet's murder, then arrested Huff in Essex, where he was then living, on suspicion of Janet's rape and murder. In subsequent interviews with North Wales Police at headquarters in St Asaph, Huff confirmed that he was living with his family in Mesa Dre in 1976 and had planned to join the RAF, though he had failed the medical due to his eyesight. Huff described enjoying playing ice hockey and rugby when he was a teenager, saying when he described being athletic, For a 16-year-old, I was quite big. His social life back then was solely skating, he told police and he had ice hockey training twice a week at Deeside, before he joined the army at age 21. When he was shown photographs of Janet Cummins, Noel Jones and Michael Orford, Huff denied knowing any of them, or ever having met them, and when asked what he could recall about the murder of Janet Cummins, he told detectives that he didn't know the body found close to his home four decades before was Janet's until recently. He furthered that he didn't read newspapers or watch television and would have been busy playing ice hockey six miles away in Deeside so would not have been privy to what was the talk of the town despite the large-scale police investigation. However, he admitted his family would have been concerned that a schoolgirl had been murdered locally particularly as he had a younger sister but said he wasn't spending a lot of time at home as he would often spend time in a tent in his grandparents' back garden a few doors down just to get away from the family house. Huff was then asked if there was anything he could recall about when Janet went missing, and Huff recalled that on the day he could remember, in his words, basically going down to the car, working on the car, and going down to the gas board. He also said he could remember being interviewed by a police officer 
Detective Sergeant Joseph Dunn in 1976 when he got done after siphoning petrol. Reminded that he had also at first admitted masturbating in his car at the time, Huff said he could have crawled under a rock after admitting that to officers. He maintained that the night Janet went missing was the night he was caught stealing petrol, telling police to read the statement he made at the time as that would tell them exactly what he was doing that night, and furthered to detectives that he remembered two things his mum told him about Janet's death at the time, one being not to play in the Gwynedd school anymore, and the other being that Janet was a cousin of theirs. Now this has never been confirmed, and if there was any truth to it, it would be a distant one by marriage. So, Huff would discuss some things fine, quite openly and confidently even, right up until detectives put the DNA evidence linking him with the 1976 crime to him, where he then shut up completely. A transcript of a portion of Huff's interview once this had been put to him, which can be seen in the link in the episode show notes as the video was released by North Wales Police, reads as follows. Detective Constable Philip Williams asks Huff, Janet's death would have been the talk of the town in Flint. How did you feel about it? Huff, I'm not prepared to say it this time. What can you tell me about your involvement in the murder of Janet Cummins in January 1976? No comment. She's been vaginally raped and anally raped, and during the course of that, she's also suffered suffocation round the face and neck. Certainly those injuries that I specify to you indicate that, okay? Now, taking into account all those injuries, and the cause of death, Stephen, are you responsible for those injuries? No comment. Do you understand what I'm saying to you there in respect to those injuries? I do. Are you responsible for those injuries? No comment. A mouth swab is taken from you. That swab is loaded onto the DNA database. That swab is a full hit on the semen cell stain from Janet Cummins' trousers in 1976. Now if you fully understand what I'm saying, if you want me to explain it, I'll explain it. I understand. So, Stephen, please explain how your semen is on Janet Cummins' trousers. No comment. What reason would there be for that semen stain to be on her trousers? No comment. Is there any explanation you can give me at this time? No comment. Are you willing to give an explanation? No comment. On the evening of Tuesday, September the 6th, 2016, Stephen Anthony Huff was charged with the murder, rape and buggery of Janet Commons back in January 1976, to which he was again cautioned and made no reply. He spoke only to confirm his name at a brief hearing at Llandidno Magistrates Court the following morning to answer these charges, as well as charges of separate offences of rape and sexual touching, which were alleged to have happened in February of that year in Essex, before being remanded in custody to HMP Alt Course in Liverpool, from where he appeared at Mould Crown Court the following morning via video link and was committed for trial. Following Eileen's statement that I opened the account with, more than a dozen bunches of flowers were left on Flint's Gorsed stones near the spot where Janet was found to remember the tragic teenager. A note on one of them read, 
Not a moment has gone by when I have not thought about you. You'll be forever in my heart and thoughts, Janet. Another read, R.I.P. Janet, our thoughts are with your family. Local councillor Vicky Perfect, what a great name or what, described at the time how Janet's death lingered on in the memories of many in the area, saying, Flowers have been appearing near the Gorsed Stones, not far from where her body was found all those years ago. It was obviously a terrible thing to happen, and being such a close-knit community, these kinds of incidents are never forgotten. I think it's people's way of being respectful during a time when a murder has been brought back into the national attention. Eileen Cummins, by that time a widow who still lived in the same house, described later how very moved she'd been by the gesture, thanking people kindly and saying, God bless you all. 41 years to the day that Janet's body was discovered, then 57-year-old Huff appeared in Mould Crown Court via a three-way link between the presiding judge in Cardiff and Manchester Prison for a plea and trial preparation hearing, and apart from confirming his identity, said nothing during the half-hour hearing, where Judge Ellery Rees made a series of directions in preparation for his trial to begin on March the 6th. Now it was actually postponed for a further three months after this date due to lead counsel being taken ill, but following a minute's silence observed in memory of the Finsbury Park Mosque attack victims from the previous week, and that's a case we may look at in a future episode, on Tuesday the 27th of June 2017, Stephen Huff, an address of Mesa Dre, Flint, given for him, went on trial at Mould Crown Court accused of killing and sexually assaulting Janet Cummins in 1976, charges which he denied. Opening the case for the Crown, Mark Hayward Casey, prosecuting, told the jury, This is an unusual case. Firstly, we have to deal with events dating back over 40 years and people's abilities to remember so long ago. He went on to explain the circumstances leading to Janet's disappearance, the hunt for her, and the discovery of her body four days later, saying how she'd been raped and killed as a result of her neck and her external airway being compressed and blocked during that sexual assault. He then explained how the defendant Huff had been one of the thousands of young men from the Flint area who had been interviewed at the time of the initial investigation spoken to on January 12th, 1976, where he was at first unforthcoming, but that the defendant eventually came out with words to the effect of, okay, I'll come clean, I was masturbating in the back of my car. Mr. Hayward continued. Mr. Huff then went on to admit that he'd been siphoning petrol that night from a vehicle in the Flint area. In consequence, he was charged with theft and appeared before magistrates then he was fined £5. It seemed that that was the end of the matter. In the course of the inquiry, information emerged that a young man called Noel Jones, then 18, had told his girlfriend that he had killed a young girl. Jones was brought into custody. Jones was interviewed. The practice of tape recording such, in such interviews had not yet been established. Instead, a written record was made, 
in this case in the form of two statements signed and dated January 29th and 30th, 1976, in which he admitted that he raped Janet and that during the struggle she had died. Jones was prosecuted for murder and pleaded not guilty. In the course of that trial, it was agreed that a plea to a lesser alternative charge of manslaughter would be acceptable. Thus Jones pleaded guilty to manslaughter and was sentenced to 12 years imprisonment, of which he served six years. On his release, Jones went about re-establishing his life. He never challenged the circumstances of his conviction, but asserts that he always knew he was innocent and only confessed due to pressure placed upon him at the time. In February 2016, police took a sample of Huff's DNA in circumstances that are of no significance to this case, Mr. Haywood said. But it matched perfectly against the sample taken from Janet in 1976. He continued, The prosecution say that when you've considered all the evidence you will hear in this case, there is support for Jones's claim that he was not Janet's killer, and, in all the circumstances, you can be sure that the defendant, Stephen Huff, was. What consequences that implies for Noel Jones hereafter are not for this court to decide. The findings of the then late Dr. Reuben Woodcock were presented to the court, but evidence was also given by consultant forensic pathologist Dr. Brian Rogers, who had examined the original pathology reports, and whilst agreeing with Dr. Woodcock that Janet's body was probably dragged feet first, and had been lying face down for a period of time before being moved to a place of concealment within 12 hours of her death. When asked his opinion on her cause of death, Dr. Rogers replied, I think it's a combination of things. There's enough evidence to suggest neck compression or external airway occlusion, but I think this young girl has essentially died of the effect of constraint. In situations of high physical stress, if you're in a face down position, it compromises your breathing. She either could have had her face pushed into the ground and her airway obstructed, or a hand over her mouth. I think a whole death is multifunctional, but taking everything into account, the evidence points down the line that death would have been quite quick. After the evidence of several retired and late police and scene of crime officers was given to the court concerning evidence obtained, mud samples, foliage collected from the body dump site, the recovery of Janet's missing articles of clothing, as well as statements read out from people concerned with the case back in 1976, such as Dawn Weaver, the girl who discovered Janet's body, or John Hughes, the caretaker that Dawn and her friends reported their find to, and who had contacted police. The man who led the original investigation, Eric Evans, at the time, the senior investigating officer as head of CID also gave evidence. Speaking at Mould Crown Court, Mr Evans, who had retired from the force in 1991, said he was a serving officer for 37 years, eventually working his way up to Deputy Chief Constable, and read from statements he'd made at the time of Noel Jones' arrest, which described the questions Jones was asked and the answers he gave, as there were no tape-recorded interviews at the time, only a typewritten record. Mr Evans said that Jones first told police he didn't know the girl or know anything about it, 
and when the statement from Jones's then-girlfriend Linda Eyeball was put to him, in which she told how he'd confessed to killing a girl and showed her scratches on his neck, though had added she didn't believe him and he had confirmed the following day that he was only joking. Jones later said he'd asked Linda Eyeball to give him an alibi due to the fact that he was worried about the police because they're always after me for something. Miss Eyeball's statement was what made the detective form the belief that Jones was lying, Mr Evans admitted to the court, as he explained during the interview with Jones, he had told him, I think what you told your girlfriend was the truth, which Jones had denied. As we heard, and shall again shortly, the lengthy interview resulted in Jones's signed confession to Janet's murder. But the prosecution suggested the policeman had closed his mind to Jones's denials and allowed his private belief to intrude into his questioning. Asked about the interview between him and Noel Jones, Mr Haywood said, It was an interview between a senior police officer and a barely literate 18-year-old. It's hardly a battle of equals, Mr Evans, is it? If you say so, Evans replied. The court heard that the Police and Criminal Evidence Act, designed to strike a balance between protecting individuals' rights and a fair investigation, was not brought into force until 1986, and that under the Act, Mr Evans agreed that a person brought into custody has the right to be represented by a solicitor. However, he said that back in 1976, there wasn't one available for Jones until a later time, and he had given both confessions, a quote, because he hadn't asked for one. There was no requirement in those days for a person to be advised they could have a solicitor, and as a police service, we were very often impeded by solicitors representing clients. Mr. Haywood explained that it would be the detainee's right, and asked, how would a solicitor impede that? Mr. Evans replied, it depends on the result. It depends if the solicitor advises a client to say nothing. This was an extremely nasty murder. It was a serious matter involving a 15-year-old girl, and I wanted to investigate it properly and thoroughly. That's perfectly proper, is it? said Mr. Haywood. Why should they not? asked Mr. Evans. Because you were meant to be investigating the death of Janet Cummins impartially and dispassionately, Mr. Haywood replied. He added, you formed your belief of where the truth lay and the person saying he didn't do it was an 18-year-old illiterate gypsy. Mr Evans denied that Jones was put under pressure or had words put into his mouth. In re-examination, he was asked by Huff's defence barrister, Patrick Harrington Casey, Did you do anything in the investigation that you shouldn't have done? No, Mr Evans replied. Albert Roberts was a detective inspector for North Wales Police who was present when Jones made and signed the confession statement admitting he was responsible. Long since retired, he gave evidence and read from a statement he'd made at the time about what Jones was asked and the answers he gave. He'd also been present when Jones was taken to Flint in a police car and asked to reconstruct his movements, notes about which were recorded in police pocket notebooks. These notes were then transcribed into statements and said Jones admitted that he lifted Janet's body over the fence of the school playing fields 
and when police suggested it must have been a struggle doing that on his own, they asked if anyone was with him, which is when Jones had named Michael Orford. During cross-examination, Mr Hayward said in Jones's first confession statement that there was no suggestion he'd been with anyone. It was only when he was told that it would have been hard to put someone over the fence that his story changed. He asked Mr Roberts, Does that seem odd to you? There was no objective evidence to link Mike to the crime, nothing other than what Jones has said. Did you pause to consider whether Jones was reliable? Mr Roberts replied, As far as I'm concerned, he was very straight. Mr Hayward asked, Did he volunteer anything without police asking specifically about it? Mr Roberts admitted that when not asked questions, Jones wasn't forthcoming. Mr Hayward said, Mr Jones said he was bombarded with questions and went along with them. Mr Roberts replied, He seemed alright to me. He was answering questions alright without any difficulty. When it was put to him that during the trial, as I shall come on to bring you shortly, Jones had given evidence describing feeling under pressure throughout both statements he'd made at the police station in 1976. When asked by Mr Haywood, What do you say to that? Mr Roberts replied, Absolute nonsense. So both officers had said that Jones seemed fine whilst under interview, and even the barrister who had represented him back in 1976, Gareth Edwards KC, told the jury that he recalled Jones pleading guilty to Janet's manslaughter and didn't remember Jones instructing him that confession statements he signed were false, saying, My recollection is he was quite happy to plead to manslaughter, though he agreed when Mr Hayward asked him, happy in the sense it was the lesser of two evils rather than murder. And it was Noel Jones himself who was the most tragic witness to give evidence during the trial, which he did via video link, and where he told the cause of the six years he spent in prison as a nightmare, which, in his words, absolutely destroyed my life. The 59-year-old told how back in 1976 he'd been in and around the Flint area looking for scrap to sell, and was questioned by police in a lay-by in Northup, though claimed he didn't even know the men he was talking to were police at the time. Then, some days later, as he came out of the Hope and Anchor pub in Buckley, two police cars pulled up and an officer said to him, Get in, you're under arrest. He added, I was in hell, I didn't know what was happening to me. Mr Jones claimed he was then questioned for at least two days and was shown papers he couldn't read, as he could barely read or write at the time, but couldn't get to see a solicitor, and believed he was targeted purely as he was a traveller. He said of the first statement he signed on January 29th that they were putting words in my mouth, adding, I would never have come up with things like this. The statement he'd signed on January the 30th, said that his cousin's partner, Michael Orford, was also involved in the crime, explaining, They assumed Michael was with me because they knew we were up and down in the van together looking for scrap. Mr Jones was challenged by Huff's defence barrister, Mr Harrington, about why when he went to the police station in February 2016 to give a DNA sample, Jones had made no attempt to say the confessions were false, 
despite having a golden opportunity to do so, and asked further why he had signed the confession, a declaration saying he had made the statement of his own free will within hours of being brought in for questioning if he was innocent. Asked if he realised that he was signing a confession to killing someone, Jones said, I didn't understand it quite at the time. Asked why he had done so then, Jones replied, Because I was told to. I wouldn't know what I was signing because I couldn't read and write proper, so it could have been anything. I was frightened, scared to tell the truth. They brainwashed me. It wasn't physical violence, it was mentally. Mr Harrington told the court how Jones made 15 or 16 brief appearances in the magistrate's court and saw a solicitor on those occasions. Plus, during the case at Mould Crown Court in June 1976, he was represented by a solicitor and two barristers. Referring to Jones's conviction for manslaughter, which he had admitted and had served half of his subsequent 12-year sentence for, yet had never challenged his conviction, Mr Harrington asked him, How can an 18-year-old give completely bogus confessions and not get his barrister to say so? Mr Jones replied, I don't know, sir. I was under that much pressure, I'd have confessed to anything. I was told to plead guilty by my solicitor. I said things, but not these things. I was saying what they wanted. When Mr Harrington then referred back to the contemporaneous notes detectives made of the things Jones had said along the way as he was driven around Flint, including him pointing out places he'd seen Janet, marking a cross on a drawn map to mark where he had found Janet hiding from him, and describing how he went about sexually assaulting her, Jones told the court, I never did any of this. I may have gotten the vehicle, but this is all. Definitely not me. Mr. Harrington asked, Where's all the detail come from then, Mr. Jones? Jones continued, I don't know, sir. This statement, it's not me. I never done this thing. I was just lost. I didn't know what was going on. It seemed like forever. I was agreeing to whatever they wanted me to say. Everything was just going so fast, and they were just saying to me, you done it, you done it, you done it. Jones told the court the questioning continued. Until they got what they wanted, I happened to fit the bill. I was like a scapegoat. That's what it felt like. Mr Harrington asked, All of what was written down in the car was made up, was it? You are saying that you didn't say the things that were written down? No, sir. Was that the case with both of the statements? Yes, sir. So these are just things that were made up, were they? Yes, sir. To frame you for a crime you hadn't committed? Yes, sir. I did not know this person, and I would not commit this crime. I had no reason to commit this crime. I had a girlfriend at the time, and we were happy together. I had plenty of friends. I had no reason to do this. You were made a scapegoat by signing completely false confessions. Why would they pick on you? I was just there at the time, Jones replied. Speaking about his imprisonment, he described the hell of his daily fight for survival in prison, where he said prisoners would spit at him, call him a beast and threaten to stab him, adding that he was beaten up a couple of times and ultimately asked to be kept in solitary confinement, telling the court. It was horrendous. I couldn't put it into words. I was mentally drained. 
I had to survive the best way I could. I used to tell people I was innocent, but who'd listen? Everyone's innocent in there, that's what they used to say. Whilst in prison, he explained, he changed his name, saying, People didn't want to know me, even family. I never had the means to get anyone to speak for me. Upon his release in 1982, having served half of his 12-year sentence, Jones explained how he had married and had children, but said he had never appealed the sentence for fear it could actually have been increased. As Huff listened from the dock, Jones said he felt that, once and for all, that it was getting sorted out so I can tell my side of the story. But he said the toll on him and his family had been devastating, adding, It's absolutely ruined my life. I've had heartache and grief all my life. My life has been a waste of time. I've considered a few times topping myself, but I wanted to prove while I'm still able that I'm not this person. I'm not that animal in the statements. I wouldn't do that. There's no way I did this. I feel sorry for the parents, but I had nothing to do with this. I hold my hands to God. I haven't done this. It's mentally tortured me to death. Asked once again if he had killed Janet Cummins, Noel Jones replied, No, no, on a stack of Bibles, no. Midway through the trial, the seven men and five women of the jury were taken by minibus from Mould Crown Court to Flint, where they got out near King Edward Drive, where the 15-year-old had lived with her parents, and where her mother still lived. They were then taken from here along Coydon Road, and up a grass hill overlooking the Gwynedd School playing fields, before visiting the Gorsed Circle and walking along the path adjacent to the school towards the spot where Janet was found. They spent a quiet few moments of reflection here, before following another path away, this one leading to Mesa Dre. Now, after part one of this tale was released, I also released a few videos onto the show's Facebook discussion group that I took recreating this journey, that the jury will have taken. But I also too headed to the top of the hill for a bit of an oversight video so I could get a better appreciation of the proximity of every location mentioned, and which will be in the Facebook group as you listen, a video which includes Mesa Dre on this. I'm sure you won't believe the proximity from where Janet was raped and murdered to where a killer lived at the time, as forensic science had indicated at a billion to one match. Forensic scientist Alexander Peet, who works for DNA testing service Cellmark, had told Mould Crown Court reference the swabs taken from Janet's body that in the samples tested, he believed the DNA originated from sperm cells and was unlikely to have been deposited more than 48 hours prior to Janet's death. But when it was retested against Noel Jones and Michael Orford's DNA samples, there was no match. But on March the 7th, 2016, there had been a match, with Mr. Pete explaining, It was one billion times more likely to have come from Stephen Huff than someone unrelated to him. The court heard that DNA assumed to belong to Janet was also detected in one test. In another, there were low-level indications of a third contributor, but it was not possible to determine their origin although Mr. Pete said that that reading could be an artefact of the DNA process itself, 
or could be down to tiny fragments of DNA being introduced in the collection process. Dr. Christopher Lloyd, who carried out further testing after his colleague Mr. Pete, concentrating on Y-STR profiling, which focuses on the male chromosome, supported that whilst there was indeed a very low-level unconfirmed result in one swab that might indicate the presence of another male, Dr. Lloyd said it had not provided any evidence that more than one male was involved in sexual activity with Janet, and he told the court that his findings were, as I would expect if Stephen Huff had been involved in sexual activity with Janet Cummins. A mere hundred yards from his home on a winter's night 41 years before. Before Huff himself took the stand, there was a final witness with a sensational piece of evidence that had come to police attention less than two weeks before the start of the trial and a real blast from Huff's past. Given evidence from behind a screen so as not to see him, Huff's first wife, Delith Sands, who had divorced him in 1989, described an out-of-the-ordinary conversation she had recalled having with her former husband whilst living in army quarters in Germany where he was serving as a soldier in the 1980s. She told Mold Crown Court, He said that he had killed someone, and I said, Well, who have you killed? And he said, Someone back home. Huff had allegedly made the confession when, sometime between 1985 and 1988, the date is not specific, they were discussing why he had wanted to join the forces, and recalling the conversation, Mrs Sands told the court, I asked if he'd always wanted to be in the army, and he said no, he'd always wanted to work on the fair. I asked him why he didn't, and he said he could never do that again. I thought that seemed a bit dramatic, and asked him why not and he said it was because he'd killed someone back home. Mrs. Sands said she'd asked who it was, and he replied that he would never tell her, and aggressively told her to never ask him again. Mrs. Sands continued, The only person I knew who was killed in my hometown of Flint was Janet Cummins, but they had someone for that. She said that when she mentioned this to Huff, he just looked down at the floor. Mrs. Sands was informed of her ex-husband's arrest on suspicion of Janet's rape and murder by police in 2016 and was spoken to as part of Operation Orbicular. Asked by Mr. Harrison if this had prompted her to suddenly remember the alleged confession, she replied, No, I'd buried things so deep, I never wanted to think about him again. She told the court that this memory had only come back to her quite recently when she was relaxing on holiday so she had told her husband about it, and after discussion, had informed police of it just 13 days before the start of Huff's trial. When Mr. Harrington asked why she'd made no mention of the conversation in her divorce petition, she replied, because I'd buried it and forgotten it. Mr. Harrington continued, so that memory lay dormant for years, and you happened to remember it at the start of the trial? The eureka moment came in the weeks before the trial. Isn't it a bit of a fantasy? Have you got a good word to say about Mr. Huff? Mrs. Sands answered, No, Mr. Harrington, I came to tell the truth, and that's exactly what I'm doing. I have nothing to say about him. I've divorced him, he's out of my life, and that's how I like it. 
boom. When Huff took the stand, he maintained the story that he'd given back in 1976 and again the previous year, that on the evening of the murder, he'd been masturbating in his car because he had no privacy at home to do so, and had then been siphoning petrol, again telling the court to check the statement he had given four decades previously. Asked in court if he knew Mr Jones, he replied no, adding that he also did not know Janet or the other man, Michael Orford, and denied such a conversation had ever taken place when asked about evidence that his former wife gave claiming he'd once told her that he'd killed someone. Reference that no comment answers that the jury had heard and seen him give in police interview when he'd been posed with the DNA evidence tying him to the crime, and one in one billion are the kind of odds we like, aren't they? Huff said his solicitor had told him to answer no comment to questions if he couldn't remember details rather than guess, and he'd done so because, quote, everything is blurring into the one continuous stream. Mr. Haywood, however, claimed Huff gave no comment responses during interviews because he didn't think his answers would stand up to scrutiny. He said during cross-examination. In early January 1976, on ground you knew very well, you raped, buggered and murdered Janet Cummins, then you hid her body. And after, you went back to your home and you've been trying to hide from what you did for 40 years. Huff replied, no sir, I did not. Mr Hayward continued, you took advantage of Janet and you took advantage of Noel Jones's plea to manslaughter. You did know Noel Jones had been prosecuted and you were willing to let him go to prison for something you have always known you did. He added that DNA samples matching Huff's and those found on Janet's body proved his guilt, yet despite the overwhelming evidence, Huff still insisted he was innocent, telling the court he had no explanation for why his DNA was found on Janet's body. Mr Haywood said, It's because you raped her and you buggered her and ejaculated on her body and that semen comes from you. That's the reality, isn't it? Huff replied, I do not know where they came from, sir. Mr Haywood continued, Face reality, Mr Huff. It's the evidence that proves what you did to Janet, isn't it? Did you sneak up on Janet in the dark? No, sir, Huff replied. Giving evidence in his defence, Huff was asked by his barrister, Mr Harrington. Did you have anything to do with her death? No, sir, he replied. There's one clear winner in that round, I think. In his closing remarks, Mr. Hayward highlighted that Jones's account of events in his first confession statement vastly differed to what he pointed out subsequently in Reconstruction and his second account, raising queries such as why Janet would run away from houses and her own home into the darkness of the fields, or why Jones also said he'd burned one of Janet's shoes with his own clothing, but there was no evidence of this and both of Janet's shoes were later found on the playing fields near to her body. He pointed out that Noel Jones had said in evidence both, if they'd said anything to me, I'd have agreed just to get them off my back. If they said I'd done this or that, I'd have said yes. And, 
if I'd had a solicitor or something in early stages, it might have been different. Mr. Haywood went on. Police wholly reject those comments and criticisms in 1976 and say there is nothing wrong with the way he was treated and made no departure from the right procedure. Did all this come flowing naturally from Noel Jones? There is no DNA evidence to support any of this. These graphic descriptions of Noel Jones's are unsupported. There is no more support for Michael Orford having done what Jones describes having seen before his eyes. Let's face facts. These two accounts are rubbish. They have a certain superficial attraction if you are looking for admissions. They don't stand up to scrutiny. They can be seen for what they are. They are false. It matters not whose mouth they came from. It's not true. Noel Jones was not guilty of these offences. The tone of the 1976 investigation was set by D.I. Eric Evans, the senior investigating officer, someone who thought the right to silence got in the way, a man who thought solicitors taking up that right impede the investigation. Was his mind open to huff with the quality of evidence he had, or did he see what suited him and excuse every other way of looking at it? The damage was done. This genie wasn't going back in the bottle. The admissions were damning. Asking then why didn't he admit this wasn't true is like putting the cart before the horse, for he was already tied to the admissions mate. The killer was not Noel Jones or Michael Orford. It was Stephen Huff, who police ruled out because he demonstrated he was siphoning petrol. He was strong, he was fit, and he was more than a match for either Janet in a struggle or for moving 44.5 kilos of her weight. Clearly scrabbling for points, in his closing remarks, Mr. Harrington explained how Huff had been criticised for answering no comment in interview, even to fairly straightforward questions, although he was merely following the advice of his solicitor, who had instructed him not to guess. He also pointed out how Huff's ex-wife didn't mention, when questioned by police, his alleged confession to killing someone, despite being given a golden opportunity to, saying, She managed to forget it for 30 odd years, but then she had a visitation. She then volunteers to police 13 days before the trial. He said to take anything from that would be laying a dangerous track for yourselves, because the hallmark was consistency and went on to explain that although Huff couldn't explain why his DNA was found on Janet, Mr. Harrington claimed that Huff, at 16, had had no previous sexual experience. He was a virgin and had never been intimate with a woman or girl, meaning there was a fundamental implausibility of a 16-year-old virgin having the ability to commit such a crime, saying, I would ask you to look at the adolescent Stephen Huff rather than looking at how he is now. He added that Noel Jones was promoted to centre stage in the powerful address by the prosecution, and asked the jury, Are you sure Noel Jones had nothing to do with it? Can we say hand on heart that Noel Jones wasn't involved? In his own remarks, presiding Mr Justice Lewis told the jury if they found Huff not guilty of murder or manslaughter, then he was not guilty of the other charges he faced either. 
He also reminded them of Noel Jones's guilty plea to the charge of manslaughter back in 1976, saying, Those who kill young girls can't expect a rosy reception in prison, but he came out and got on with his life. Now, 40 years later, he's saying he didn't do it. The critical question for you is, are you sure that Noel Jones didn't kill Janet Cummins? Even if you decide Noel Jones' evidence is untrue, or think he did say those things in 1976, you still have to consider all the evidence. Throughout the 13-day trial, several of Janet's loved ones glared down at Huff from the public gallery with him refusing to look up at them, though Eileen was too upset to attend proceedings. Some details that were heard, and bear in mind they'd already been through this once before it was resurrected again four decades later, painful all over again for them. Some details were too much for some of the family members to hear, and they'd had to leave the public gallery. But some were brought into the courtroom to face the jury while the verdict was delivered, as on the morning of Thursday the 13th of July 2017, after just over five and a half hours deliberation, the jury reached unanimous verdict of guilty on counts of manslaughter, rape and serious sexual assault against Huff, though he was found not guilty of murder, leading to gasps from the public gallery while Huff sat emotionless in the dock. In a summary of his remarks, and there is a link in the episode show notes so you can read them in full for yourselves should you wish. I always find them fascinating to do so. Sentencing Huff, Mr Justice Lewis told him, Janet Cummins was a 15-year-old schoolgirl living in Flint in January 1976. You, Stephen Huff, also lived in Flint. You were 16 years old, a few days short of your 17th birthday on the night Janet disappeared. At some stage that night, you must have come across Janet. You held her face down whilst you raped and buggered her. In the course of that violent sexual assault, she was unable to breathe and died, either as a result of her face being pushed into the ground, or because you had a hand around her face and mouth. You left her body, lying face down, for some hours before you turned the body over, and dragged the body to a thicket near where you lived, and then hid the body in the bushes. Though you were 16 at the time, your culpability was, in my judgement, very high. You knew what you were doing. You were raping and buggering a young girl for your own sexual pleasure. You knew it was wrong. That conclusion is reinforced, in my judgement, by the fact that you concealed the body and you lied to police about your involvement. You did so because you knew what you'd done was wrong and you wanted to avoid the consequences. You have shown no remorse whatsoever for what you've done. Like many young men in Flint in that January, you were questioned about your movements that night, but you lied to the police about where you were and what you were doing in order to conceal your involvement. Furthermore, one of the unusual features of this case is that another person, a partially literate 18-year-old man, was arrested and then convicted of the manslaughter of Janet Cummins in 1976. He was sentenced to 12 years imprisonment and served one half of that sentence. As a result, you must have thought that your responsibility for these crimes would never be detected, but you were not able to avoid justice forever. <laughs>
Huff was then sentenced to 12 years imprisonment for manslaughter, 8 years for rape and 8 years for buggery to run concurrently. As I said, if you read the sentencing remarks in full, the judge explains this sentencing in great depth. The same afternoon, Huff then pleaded guilty to the serious sexual assault of another girl under the age of 16 between February the 5th and the 8th. 2016, charges of which the jury in the Janet Cummins trial were of course never made aware of, but the offence which led to his DNA sample being added to the National DNA Database, for it to be matched with the Janet samples in March of that year. Mould Crown Court heard how Huff was working as a long-distance lorry driver and was separated from his second wife at the time of the 2016 sexual assault where Huff had plied his victim with alcohol before leaving a bruised, with his semen and DNA later recovered from her body and underwear. He was due to stand trial that September in Newport, charged with the rape and sexual assault of the girl, but instead pleaded not guilty to rape, but admitted serious sexual assault, a plea which was accepted by the prosecution on the grounds that there was more evidence to support this latter charge. In an impact statement read to the court, the unnamed victim said, There hasn't been a day where I haven't been reminded of what happened. It makes me feel sick and upset. It's something I'll have to deal with for the rest of my life and has impacted me and my family. It's closed me off from the rest of society. The mother was present in court to hear Huff's fate, as in mitigation, Defence barrister Patrick Harrington said that Huff should be given credit for his guilty plea and how he'd been a hard-working man throughout his life and would likely face the possibility of being homeless when he's released from prison. The heart bleeds, doesn't it? Sentencing him to just a further three years' imprisonment and informing Huff his name would be added to the sex offenders register, Mr Justice Lewis said, the circumstances in which you come to plead guilty are unusual. You were a 57-year-old man when you deliberately preyed on a young 15-year-old. The three years, with a quarter reduced for the guilty plea, will be consecutive to the sentences imposed earlier today. You will serve half of that sentence in custody, then you will be released on licence. Huff was then taken away to begin his sentence. Outside the court, some of Janet's relatives were in tears as her uncle, Derek Erston, read a statement saying, On January 7th, 1976, my niece Janet Cummins was brutally raped and killed in Flint. I vividly recall the events surrounding Janet's death and the misery and desperation her loss caused all the family, but in particular, her parents Eileen and Edward. Unfortunately, Ted passed away some years ago following a long illness and is not here today to see justice finally done with the conviction of Huff. It's so galling to think that the person who so maliciously and violently took Janet's life has been living in our community all these years. The difficulty for the family is that he has had a life, been married, had children, but he stole Janet's future taking away the opportunity from Eileen, Ted and the rest of the family to see Janet grow up, get married and have her own children. Today's verdict cannot bring Janet back to us, but hopefully in the weeks and months to come, 
will provide us with some closure. I must express the thanks of the family to the prosecuting team and to North Wales Police, particularly DS Eston Davis, the senior investigating officer who has ensured that Eileen and the family have been supported throughout this nightmare and without bias followed the evidence wherever it has led. I would also like to thank the community of Flint for their continuing support at this time. We're just happy now we've got complete closure on the subject, and of course, our thoughts mainly are with Eileen, Janet's mum, and my wife's sister. What she's going through is dreadful. We also, as a family, feel for Noel Jones, who has also suffered so much since 1976. Poor woman. Indeed, it would surely be like grieving for someone with the initial intensity of how you'd first did 40 years before when you first lost them, yet for someone you'd never really stopped grieving for. There are so many victims in this tragic case. Also speaking outside Mould Crown Court, Detective Superintendent Yeston Davis said, Today's sentencing of Stephen Huff will, I sincerely hope, help to bring some degree of justice to the mother, family and friends of a 15-year-old schoolgirl who was callously killed in Flint 40 years ago. Janet Cummins was subjected to an horrific, sustained and brutal sexually motivated assault in January 1976, and the impact upon her family, friends and the entire community was enormous. Huff's DNA was first taken last year and there was a direct hit on the national database relating to the crime stain from Janet's body, which prompted us to fully reopen the case. Huff is now in prison where he rightly belongs. Concerning Noel Jones, D.S. Davis said, Clearly it's a matter for Noel Jones what steps he does take, but ultimately at this trial, 12 people have concluded that he indeed wasn't guilty of that 1976 crime. Following Huff's conviction, the tributes to Janet and support for Eileen and her family came thick and fast, as feelings showed that the whole community could now close a dark chapter in its history. I think what emphasised this most, and I certainly found it to be a touching tribute, came from the Flint Male Voice Choir, which was created the year before Janet's death and who said in a statement released on social media. After four decades, justice in the town of Flint was finally to be had. Janet, a 15-year-old child from the town, was brutally taken away from the love of her family. Her death has, for four decades, cast a sorry shadow over this town. The entire community of Flint sends our prayers and thoughts to her family and friends. They added, in the words of our country's most endeared tune, Mivanwi, these fitting words of the song may ever be a testament to your precious days among this community. Mivanwi, may the whole of thy life be under the bright sunshine of midday, and may the ruddy roses of youth dance for a hundred years on thy cheek. Forget all of thy promises which thou madest to someone, my lovely lass, and give thy hand, tender Mivanwi, only to say the word, farewell. A few days after Huff's sentencing, Derek Yurston spoke to the Daily Post newspaper, where in a frank interview, 
told how he and Janet's family felt the Huff sentence was too lenient and that he should spend his last days behind bars, saying, We're very disappointed with the sentence itself considering what happened to Janet, but having said that, we're just glad that the person who committed this atrocious crime has gone down. It's proved now that an innocent man went down for a crime he didn't commit. The fact that Noel Jones served six years for something he didn't do was most unfortunate. He was reputed to be completely illiterate and words were put into his mouth. I don't think he got the proper protection from the law at that time. Mr. Yurston added, The investigation in 1976 seemed to me to be shoddy. Anything as a family that we put forward was dismissed, and I thought the original trial was a complete and utter farce. It was so shoddy, it was unbelievable. I was listening to what I considered to be absolute nonsense, and how it was accepted, I'll never know. In my personal opinion, you can only put that down to the police at the time. The statements that were reputed to have been made by Noel Jones, to me, just did not make sense. The comments in them were ridiculous. The trial itself came to an abrupt halt after about four or five days when a plea of manslaughter was admitted. And that was it. It was all over so quickly, nothing was ever explained at the time. We were sent home and never received any explanation or additional support, which at the time added enormously to the grief of the family. We had to accept it, but I've never been happy with that. Never in 41 years. Mr. Yerston again praised the latest investigation, Operation Orbicular, and the support the family had had from North Wales Police this time around, but said he welcomed the announced Independent Police Complaints Commission probe into the 1976 investigation, for sure enough, North Wales Police had referred themselves to this body following Huff's conviction, which I shall come on to shortly. Other members of Janet's family echoed their disgust at the sentence too, with her cousin Alison Wood, who was even in Huff's class in primary school, said, To find out that it was somebody that I knew, and also that Noel Jones played no part in it, someone that you've hated for 40 years, it was quite a shock really. To think that I've been that close to him in school, on school photographs, to think what he's put her through, and he's just shown no remorse still denied it. I hate him. I don't think he should ever come out of prison. And that would make me feel as if justice had been done, because the sentence he's had is ridiculous. Another cousin, Melanie Worrell, added, At least now the perpetrator, the evil monster, is behind bars. But it's just not long enough. Absolutely not. In January 2019, you'll be pleased to note that Noel Jones won an appeal against this conviction when a panel of judges sitting at the Court of Appeal, Lord Justice Sir Brian Leveson, sitting with Mr Justice Nicholl and Sir Brian Keith, ruled he had been the victim of a serious injustice and would be, in the words Lord Justice Leveson used, wholly exonerated from involvement in this terrible case. Following the Court of Appeal hearing, in a statement read out by his barrister, Simon Killeen, Noel, who was not present in court due to ill health, spoke out about his experience, saying, 
I served my sentence and tried to rebuild my life, not believing that there was any chance of ever proving I was innocent. Living in prison for six years as a child rapist and killer was difficult and dangerous, but when I was released, I tried to restart my life despite what was said about me. While reinstating my life was a great struggle as the friends and community I'd known would not have anything to do with me, I did find some sense of family life. On the other hand, the life of Janet Cummins ended at 15, and I understand the continued pain and distress suffered by her family. I was very upset and touched by the thoughts of the Cummins family in their victim personal statement read to the court at the end of the Stephen Huff case. That referred to their concern for me, and I thank them personally for wishing to reach out to me after the conviction of Huff. He furthered in his statement that, while he was not in good health currently, the conviction of Huff had allowed him to restart his life, adding, Confirmation for everyone to hear that my conviction for these horrible crimes is no more, together with the knowledge that the person who did end Janet's life is in prison, is a great comfort. Detective Superintendent Yestin Davis personally told Noel Jones of the success of his appeal that day, to which he broke down in tears. I mean, you cannot imagine, it must have been completely overwhelming that, and he described later how it was one of the most emotional moments of his career, saying, I felt I had a public duty, a moral obligation, to apologise to someone who was innocent. This was a person who'd been wronged. He'd suffered because of that. He was vulnerable. He had a torrid time, and anyone who goes through that deserves an apology. Please stand up guy, I think, there. Very good. Now, by all accounts, according to the officer I spoke to while I was researching the tale, since his release in 1982, Noel Jones has remained a quiet individual, a pleasant one even, never having put a foot wrong, yet one who, understandably, remains totally broken by his experiences. I was pleased that his appeal was successful, and although I could find no details of any compensation awarded to him following his conviction being quashed, I can imagine that the greatest reward there could be for Noel Jones is having it now publicly known that he is an innocent man. In March of the same year, what I was less pleased about is that the IPCC cleared North Wales Police over any wrongdoing over the arrest and ultimate conviction of Noel Jones, saying there was insufficient evidence that North Wales Police officers involved in the 1976 investigation breached the discipline regulations of the time or committed criminal offences when interviewing and detaining Noel Jones, looking at complaints made that officers had deprived him of food, drink, rest, and had pressured him into making a false confession. They said their probe had looked at whether officers had acted in accordance with judges' rules, which set out expectations for the treatment of people in custody at the time. As I said, it was eight years before PACE came into effect. Though this probe found there was not enough evidence officers had breached the rules to an extent that they'd perverted the course of justice, committed misconduct in public office, or breached the discipline regulations. At the time of the original investigation, Schedule 1 of the 1965 Police Discipline Regulations set out the disciplinary code, and Regional Director Derek Campbell said, following the IPCC decision, 
Today, the treatment of people in police custody is regulated by the Police and Criminal Evidence Act 1984, which was introduced to help strike the right balance between the powers of the police and the rights of those in custody. PACE covers the provision of meals, rest breaks, legal advice and support. Prior to this, the expectations for the treatment of people in custody were outlined by a document known as Judge's Rules. During our investigation, we were mindful that officers in the 1970s had considerably more leeway when questioning suspects. While the Judge's Rules had no statutory basis, there was the risk that evidence could be excluded from a criminal trial if they were found to have breached them. We also recognised that interviewing officers and witnesses more than 40 years after events would inevitably mean there were gaps in recollection. However, it was important for us to look at how this high-profile murder investigation was carried out for everyone concerned. Now, however much you might moan or grind about people saying no comment in interviews, pace is such an important thing to have come in as this case kind of demonstrates doesn't it stephen huff is today believed to have been released from the custodial part of his sentence back in march of this year and remains on license his current whereabouts are unknown although he is believed to remain in touch with connections in the flint area A crime that affected so many people this one, isn't it? And first and foremost, as many of Janet's family still live in and around the Flint area, and there is the very real possibility, indeed likelihood, that this episode will filter back to them, I must express my utmost sympathy for them, for Eileen especially. It's a crime that I found horrifying, and all the more tragic because of the closeness to her home of where she was attacked, where she was found, and discovered four decades later where a killer lived there is a video up in the show's facebook discussion group as i said depicting this well there are a couple actually that if you haven't already seen then have a look at i did leave my own personal tribute to janet at the scene too because it only felt right i also wish to express my sympathy for noel jones too who lost some of the best years of his life thrust into a nightmare that you just can't imagine his very own Shawshank, and had to start again, but always with that hanging over you. As Derek Hurston said, I think shoddy is a good word to use to describe the 1976 investigation really. I can appreciate the pressure that detectives were under to catch such a vicious killer quickly, but after reading both accounts that Jones had given, side by side, and noticing the vast differences between them, and their discrepancies, he should have been given a break, a night's sleep at least, and offered counsel, and then an account given again for comparison in the presence of a solicitor. If he's already written two, what's the problem with having him do a third one in the presence of a solicitor, just to see how the accounts stack up? Now if his account held little enough weight to charge Michael Orford, then surely Jones' claiming of details such as he'd burned one of Janet's shoes with his own clothes, something that could be easily refuted, should have made seasoned officers think, hang on, this doesn't sit too right really, he's changing his story a bit too much here. 
but for the CPS to bring charges based on the confused and garbled confessions, which, if you think would have come solely from Jones, then would have contained remorse or apologies, and no forensic evidence bar that Jones's blood group matched that of the killer, like a large percentage of the world's population, it makes you scratch your head, doesn't it? And because you had a scared lad in a position he's found himself in for signing a confession he couldn't possibly have read or understood, whose counsel tell him to plead guilty to a lesser of two evils, Noel Jones lost six years of his life and was ostracised upon his release. Now I'm in no way insinuating that Jones was fitted up intentionally by North Wales Police at the time, and a later investigation found there was no evidence to such an accusation, based on the codes of practice at the time, but there should have been several officers and court officials that should have had sleepless nights for long afterwards thinking, did we effect an arrest out of pressure? Have we browbeat this lad into a confession? Should the charge have stuck? Certainly not the finest moment for North Wales Police indeed, when you look back. Stephen Huff, meanwhile, really must have thought he had gotten away with his crime as the years turned into decades. But what goes around comes around, and he finally faced justice for Janet's killing. Though the sentence he received doesn't seem right to me, and I can understand the Cummins family's despair especially now he's believed to have been released, for really, that is a slap in the face to Eileen and Janet's family, as well as to Noel Jones, who the callous killer was quite happy to see imprisoned instead of him. What also struck me, and this was confirmed by the officer I spoke to, was that had he thought a bit quicker on his feet, and instead of the obvious lie of denying he knew Janet, and of the no-comment stance, had claimed immediately that Janet was his secret girlfriend, then that would explain away his DNA being on her clothing, and who knows, based on no further evidence, he may even have gotten away with his crime at trial. Thankfully, that didn't happen. I also wonder, as must many of the officers who worked on Operation Orbicula had too, exactly what other offences Huff has committed over the years for you do not rape and murder at age 16, then rape again 40 years later, with only a single conviction for GBH in the interim, and the rest of the time, you're a saint, no, I'm not having that, sorry, sexual offending does not stay dormant, surely, and a study of Huff's movement over the years, which would be time-consuming, granted, may tie him as a suspect in other sexual crimes, perhaps even other murders too. And this could be vast indeed, for this is someone who spent time in Europe, where he committed what smacks of being an attempted rape and murder, and the UK, which he travelled the length and breadth of over the years as a lorry driver, and it's not unheard of for a lorry driver to be a mass murdering maniac, is it? It's surprising that his DNA profile didn't flag up a match to anything else, I thought, and of course, he would never confess anyway the coward that he is, but is it just a matter of time? Like in Janet's case, is the evidence of Huff's crimes lying in the archives of the forensic science services, perhaps here and perhaps even abroad, just waiting to be discovered? What do you think? 
I would love as always hearing your thoughts and feedback on the tale, The 40 Year Secret, which you can do in the episode thread that's now up in the show's Facebook discussion group, or by getting in touch through any of the show's social media links, wherever you want to, folks. With that, another tale of darkness for the enthusiast touch beckons that I am off to put the touches to right now. So all that remains for me to say is that I thank you for joining me in the MOG today, and that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, stay safe, and goodbye for now.